When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? I hope you're well. Thank you as always for being here. We have got a busy show for you today. Coming up in a couple of moments time, we've got an interview with the director, one of the directors of a brand new film called Arsene Wenger Invincible. No spoilers, but I think you can probably guess what that one is about. After that, we'll be talking to Phil Costa, some Arsenal chat, football chat, and all the rest. And we are heading into an interlull. One more weekend of Premier League action before we get a two-week break, and many of our players will be going away on international duty, after which we play... Liverpool. So it's all a bit scary, but we do have a good chance to get three more points under our belt with a home game on Sunday against Watford. I have to say, I'm finding these uh, European weeks a little bit strange. Not simply for the fact that we're not in Europe, which is part of it, obviously a big part of it. It makes everything really, really quiet. But our lack of involvement in Europe has kind of made me not as interested in Europe in general, which is really weird. I mean, we haven't been in the Champions League for a few years now, and I'd still watch some of those games. But this season, I don't know what it is, whether it's the quiet midweeks, whether there's nothing going on, whether focus is elsewhere or whatever it might be. But Arsenal's lack of involvement in Europe, how do I describe it? It's sort of like when there's a party on that you really want to go to, but you don't get invited, so you just pretend the party's not on, you pay no attention to its existence whatsoever, even though the party's kind of well, next door and you can hear the music. And what, I don't know if I'm explaining this right. I don't even know what it is. Maybe it's just the fact that we don't have any midweek action, and that's an unusual thing to get used to as an Arsenal fan. The cycle of games, it feels long. Because it is long. It's often seven days between games. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this time next year we'll be talking about an Arsenal side that are back in Europe to some degree or another. The fact that we're just three points off the top four after four games... I mean, that really should set the standard, set the bar for what remains of this season. I know we've talked and we've had discussions about what would constitute a good season for Arsenal. What would be a successful season for Arsenal? And I think most people would have said getting back into Europe, finishing in the top six, at the very least, would be a successful season for Arsenal if you're looking for us to make progress. That doesn't mean that should be the be-all and end-all and all the rest of it, but based on what's happened the last couple of years, if you're looking to make progress, get back into Europe. Top six, top four would be amazing, blah, blah, blah. But I think we had doubts after those opening three games of the season. Now, here we are a little while down the road, And I don't think it's unrealistic at all to think that we should be well and truly in the mix for the top six. And given the way some of the other teams involved are going, why not for the top four? I don't think we'll get there, to be honest. But if you're just three points off, why can't you try and keep pace? If West Ham can do it, why can't Arsenal do it? And that's not to be dismissive of West Ham or anything like that, but if people are talking realistically about West Ham being top six, top four contenders, why not Arsenal? They've obviously done very well in recent times, but at the end of it, we only finished four points behind them last season. Nobody really would have expected David Moyes to be the manager to take West Ham into the Europa League or even be challenging for the Champions League places. So I think if that's the benchmark... And we've been more or less keeping pace with them when it comes to points, etc., etc. Look, I'm just saying, we've got ourselves into a good position. We're going to fluctuate a little bit, but I think this is more or less 
the ballpark that we should be in if we're going to consider uh, this season any kind of a success. So let's hope we keep it up at the weekend. We'll talk more about that a bit later on with Phil Costa. But as I said, there is a new film coming out next week. It's called Arsene Wenger Invincible. It's a really interesting look at uh, our former manager, his biggest achievement, not just from the perspective that we might have on it as Arsenal fans, fans who enjoyed that success, etc., etc. Lots of really interesting behind-the-scenes footage from his arrival at the club to his departure in 2018. It's a really, really good watch. It's a story we all know, but it's told in a way which I think will resonate with pretty much every Arsenal fan. So to talk to me about it, I'm delighted to welcome one of the directors of the film, Gabriel Clark. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Nice to be here. Tell me this. As a filmmaker, what was it about this story that that drove this project? Because as Arsenal fans, it's something many of us lived through and enjoyed and kind of look back on with very rose-tinted glasses because we'd like a bit more of it. But from the outside, what was it about this story that really drew you in and, and uh, helped bring this project to light? Oh, the... the um was Arsene Wenger himself doing his first film, his first film documentary and um, telling his story. That that was the attraction. It's something that's not been done before. Arsene had a book out last year, as you know, and um, uh, we, were able, we, we were able to see that just before we started filming. And I, I was always fascinated with Arsene Wenger during his time as a manager with Arsenal, having got to know him a lot and worked with him especially through that, that first half of his time at Arsenal. So to see the man and, and what he did, I was always keen on the idea of a documentary. I'd known um, Christian Jean-Pierre, my co-director, for some time, a French broadcaster who worked with Arsene in the summers uh, at TF1. So Arsene would do his summers with Arsenal and then, and then summer, as he, as he does, uh, at a FIFA World Cup or a Euros, commentating and working, such as his addiction to football, and uh, and um, about 18 months ago, Christian said, listen, I think finally, because we talked about the, the possibility of a documentary, Arsene might be, might be willing to do one. And, um, and on we went. And, and Arsene, with some time and with some distance from Arsenal, uh, hopefully has given us a portrait, helped us make a portrait that says definitive uh, about him and his time at Arsenal, as we've seen. And that, that was the attraction, if you like, of the project. It was to be the first to do a film docu- documentary with him. How receptive was he to the idea of doing it? Because, you know, you could, it's very difficult. I mean, it's a, it's a really great film, but it's quite difficult to be definitive in 90 minutes, two hours of yeah. a 20-year career. So you've yeah. obviously focused on on the invincible side of things, and that, I think, is probably his, his greatest achievement as a manager. Um, I mean, how open was he to discussing that? Um, I mean, I'm sure he was very open to it, but in the context of that, because it, I suppose when you are somewhere for 20-odd years, 22 years as he was, there's a lot more going on, and, and obviously we'll, we'll come to that in this conversation. There was a lot uh, to his time at Arsenal, but framing it around that particular season, was that something he was very open to? Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, as he says in the film, that, that's his greatest moment. He achieved his lifelong dream, and um, without a shadow of a doubt, it's, it's um, one of the greatest moments that English football's ever seen, yet to, yet to be matched, in a sense, by a team from the modern era, so... Uh, yeah, he was he was open to that, but he also knew that um, in the course of the filming that we would we would be discussing his career and, and certain choices, life choices, what motivated him, take him back to Dutlenheim where it all began to get a sense of the person, you know, un- underneath things, which I don't always think you've you've been able to get. I think there have been a lot of impressions of Arsene Wenger over time. I think that naturally comes, especially when you spend so long at one club. You get into a routine. You aren't you aren't um, maybe as uh, three dimensional. Uh, do was was peel back some of the layers. It's an overused phrase, hmm. but that, what that was our challenge and what we had to do to get a sense of the person and the the, the how he was made, what made him, the compromises he made, the choices he made, and and how he reflected on not only his achievements, but also 
the things that went wrong. And and the the, the incredible story, the, the incredible thing about his time at Arsenal is that it, it it is divided into these two very strict halves. He says it himself. And you have the, and therefore you're going to have a real emotion, emotional extremes across that period. And we wanted to enter and try and capture some of, some of the reasons behind that, that emotional uh, spectrum. Was there anything about him during the period of making the documentary that surprised you? Like you, you talked about the three-dimensional, uh, three-dimensional aspect of someone like Arsene Wenger, who's been in the media, in the football landscape for so many years. You know, Arsenal fans knew him inside out and back to front. But after a while, like you say, somebody or something can become part of the furniture in a way. I mean, were there things that you thought about him that weren't true, or, or anything uh, misconceptions about his character? Because you talk about growing up in in uh, the Alsace just after the war um, he talks about his father as he did in, in the book where his father um, never said well done to him it was always you can do better um, that, that, that represents or, or, or suggests a certain hardness doesn't it to his own character and he was looking for that approval but always at the same time trying to, to get that approval by doing better and doing better Absolutely. I, I, I mean, I think that 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 certainly did interest me. The 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 nature of his family background. I, I, I think that was fascinating, and it's something we put to Sir Alex Ferguson that, that Sir Alex was able to relate to. Uh, I, I think that this hard working class background in rural France. You you imagine rural France to be maybe more middle class. At least maybe I might have made that mistake, but um, mm. Dutlenheim hasn't changed. It's. Uh, it's a it's a working class area where um, work is work and working is valued, and religion is still powerful. And this was a, a unique, a spe- not unique, a special environment in which arson was made. And so, to put that across and come back to Dutlenheim as we do throughout the film, I think was very important to to break up the the narrative between personal football and um, a sort of broader spectrum of things was was really important to us and uh, hopefully that helps you get a sense of the person and what what made him special what drove him on the insecurities maybe that he might have had which I don't think I was necessarily that aware of before making the film I, I, I hope that people when they watch this film not only you, you know you don't get the sense of a, a film that's just being nice to Arsene and is whitewashing things because you, you can't do that with this story. It's not straightforward. And I hope also people are able to get us a, a truer sense of the man himself um, with what he's been able to tell us and show us during the film. That, that had to be the target. Is that a difficult thing to do as a filmmaker when you are uh, dealing with somebody, you know, quite directly uh, as part of the making of the film, you want to tell their story, but you want to present both parts of it. And I think we all have maybe aspects of our life. If there was a film being made about it, uh, look, focus on this stuff and not Absolutely. so much on that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I get the, you know, it, it, it must be, yeah, a little that, bit that, that, that is the dilemma always. And yeah. especially, you know, I've done, I've done documentaries, um, about, uh, uh, you know, Bobby Robson, Bobby Robson w- wasn't with us when I made that documentary. Um, and, um, you know, uh, documentaries about figures uh, who aren't alive. So the, the challenge when you're doing a documentary with a figure who is alive and, and is obviously contributing, uh, it, the great thing is that, that they'll say something, you, know, you, you aim to get something new from them. The other side of that, of course, is that, yeah, they, they may be more defensive and, and less open to, dis- to discussing certain things. And the challenge, of course, the simple challenge with this film as well was we made it during COVID. Really, it was a it was a, a film that was done throughout that period. So we had limited windows with Arsene. We wanted to film with him in France. We wanted to film with him in London. And and you have to maximise that time. And as you know, he's a very busy man. Mm. So on the basic on a basic level, it was making every second count. And that that also includes. Listen, Arsene, there are areas we want to cover in the interviews and we're going to go there. And and Arsene has always been accepting of that. The challenge is, of course, then to, as I say, to peel back the layer a bit more and to and to, and to encourage him um, to, to, to go into areas, especially in relation to Arsenal, that he's not gone into before. And I think with some distance, 
acceptance that he's had since he left the club that hopefully has benefited the film. Mm. You, I mean, you talk about showing both sides of things and his career having these two distinct halves. I think what an interesting aspect of this was, there was a part of the film uh, near the beginning where I was looking at it going, I, I think I need to turn this off because it's too soon for me. And there are elements in the early parts of Arsene Wenger's career where uh, there were defeats. And, and I'm thinking around that 1999 FA Cup semi-final with Manchester United, which I've not looked back, to, uh, looked back mm-hmm. on in, in the past because I remember it so distinctly. I remember how it made me feel. There was this perception that the first years of, of Arsene Wenger's career at Arsenal were success all the way. And I'm not sure that's necessarily true. There were huge successes and huge triumphs and huge achievements, but also fairly crushing blows as well. I do think that's an interesting aspect of this because it does inform perhaps the way that the the motivation and the desire to do what he did with the Invincibles, to go through a season unbeaten, was perhaps in some ways informed by United's treble because that couldn't that even if Arsenal Arsenal did it it would it wouldn't be a unique achievement whereas this was and remains a unique thing yeah i th- i think that's very important I, I, um by the time you get to the, the, the obviously key games which we wanted to focus on throughout that 98 2004 period building to the invincible season mm. and you had that obviously the double success and then the sense that everything was going perfectly. Arsenal were heading for another double until that night at Villa Park, mm. the gigs got. And, and this this sense, I think, that there were, from a storytelling point of view and a dramatic dramatization point of view, there are key moments. You have that penalty with Burkamp, you have the gigs goal, you have the Van Nistelrooy, you have the Vieira sending off, you have the Van Nistelrooy penalty in 2003. Then you have the Henri game when when things have flipped in 2004 and, and they finally, finally shake off this idea that they're chokers. Because there was a, a feeling that, that Arsenal would always, I think, not quite manage to get, to get over the line after 99. So the um, in the bigger picture of things. So we had these wonderful pillars in terms of the game and narratives. And that's why we wanted to, to, to shoot scenes with Arsene reliving those games. Um, so that that was structured quite clearly, uh, and I, yeah, I, I do think in relation to Manchester United, one doesn't one isn't as successful without the other. Well, we needed Sir Alex Ferguson in the film to reflect that. But uh, uh, do do Manchester United win the treble if Arsenal aren't there to push them? I'm not so sure. If Arsenal hadn't arrived the season before and set a new standard with the double, and then after Manchester United win the treble, Arsenal don't go on to be invincible. If if United haven't set that standard. Because Arsenal knew that they had to, and Arsene knew he had to develop a physicality and a mental strength to his team to match Manchester United and then overcome them. And that was proven in the Battle of Old Trafford that Arsenal were measuring up and actually stronger than United by that point. And that that physicality and that mentality aspect of it is fascinating because that's not necessarily associated with Arsenal teams and Arsene's Arsenal teams but without a shadow of a doubt, that was, I think, their greatest quality in that 2003-04 season. That's, I mean, it's curious to say that, isn't it? Because there was always an edge to Arsenal. There were always the stories about the red cards and Wenger shame as Arsenal. You know, maybe they were picked on a bit because there was a, a perception of them as a, as a foreign team. And I think it's Ian Wright who says, you know, the start where you do the setup where there was that that issue on the Highbury steps where he had to confront the press. And Ian Wright said something of, along the lines of, uh, you know, they were afraid of him because he was a foreign manager. He was alien. He was doing things. That, that people weren't used to doing and they didn't expect or didn't want from uh, a foreign manager. But going back to Alex Ferguson, uh, he is basically the only non-Arsenal talking head in, in the film, if you like. You've got some great cameos in there from brilliant Arsenal players of that era who have lots of great things to say. But for Sir Alex Ferguson to be part of it as well, I think is... <sighs> That rivalry between those two teams and between those two managers, it was so intense. 
as fans, for them, for players, you, you, that comes across in the film. You can watch any footage on YouTube. You can see how simmering it is. And I remember living it at the time and it being absolutely brilliant. And I'm not sure that we'll ever see anything like that again because we don't have this two-team era. So how is it to talk to Alex Ferguson about that down the line, given that there has been over the years a thawing between them and perhaps between even the two sets of fan bases who can look back on that period and think, wow, that was just kind of once in a lifetime experience for us. It was very important that Sir Alex contributed. Uh, he knew that um, this is the first film and, and the last film of documentary, I think, that Arsene will make about, about himself. And so that, I think, was um, one reason why he felt he should contribute. Uh, I think um, also... As you say, there's a, a growing respect between the two. Some might say that Sir Alex has grown, his respect has grown and grew because over the, the second half of Arsene's reign, Arsene wasn't such a threat. But without a shadow of a doubt, as Sir, as Sir Alex says in the film, what Arsene achieved in particular in that 2003-04 season is something special. And, and, and as you know, if you watch the film, Sir Alex says something well, which shocked me about that achievement mm. and um, was, was wonderful to hear. But I, I, I just think, you know, you, and Sir Alex was really interesting on again on Arsene's roots when we when we talked to him about Dutlenheim and the working class background and the working the work ethic and value system that that Arsene grew up with. Immediately, Sir Alex was able to relate to that from Govan and from from the from the shipyards and the the. the the impoverished background that he came from, yet the incredible value system that his family gave him. So I think that both as leaders were remarkable men. And Sir Alex has huge admiration for Arsene as a leader and what he was able to do over that, that length of time. He says, I think, two, we, we were like two dinosaurs. You'll never see it again. Uh, managers going for that length of time at their clubs. So on in that sense... They are special, very, very special figures and can relate to each other. And that's why I think Sir Alex was um, uh, wanted to be, wanted to contribute to the film because of the, those things that they have in common. The sense of place, you talk about Dutlenheim and Arsene Wenger talks about Highbury as a really special place. There's a moment in the film, film where he says he still just walks down the hill towards the stadium to relive whatever it is that he wants to relive, I guess, and to see those mm -hmm. sites, uh, you know, away from the match day crowd. And, and for Arsenal fans, Highbury is obviously a, a very, very special place. But without wanting to fast forward too close to the end and without wanting to give anything away, I mean, there's no huge spoilers here, but there is a real sense of regret. It comes across from Arsene about how things ended, about the fact that they ended, I get the sense that the way they ended is something that still, I won't say troubles him, but it's still very much to the forefront of his mind. And he hasn't been back to the Emirates since he left. So what was that aspect of it like uh, when you were talking with him? Um, I mean, there are a couple of things that he says towards the end, which are, which are really quite poignant. I don't know if what he says about returning is a, is a kind of defense mechanism, but you do get the sense that there's something missing, you know? I think, um, we, you know, what, what, what is in the film is, is what he said. We're, we're not, uh, we haven't left anything out in that sense. And I, I mm. think um, Arsene's self-critical. He's, he's able to be more self-critical now about things that happened uh, in the Emirates era and especially towards the end of the Emirates mm. era. Uh, I, we, we pressed him on that because we, we had to do that. And I think it, you know, obviously Arsenal fans are divided on the way things happened. The players, the A-list players that we interview in the film are divided mm. on the way that it ended for Arsene. It's just not straightforward. Life isn't isn't sweet, Thierry Henry says it. Thierry, Sir Alex Ferguson's um, farewell, uh, the way that he managed it, that's a rare thing. That That, that is rare. It's, it's such a shame. And maybe it's beholden upon both Arsenal and Arsene that they didn't manage the exit better, but maybe they tried as best they could and they just couldn't work it out. And and 
so therefore there is going to be that that sense of regret and confusion and difficulty and what what we tried to do in the film was simply illustrate it what we had was really strong footage which hasn't been seen before of Arsene on his final day at the Emirates in the tunnel waiting and being filmed as he he waited to be given this guard of honor uh as he said goodbye i think so many people wanted that day to be a day to celebrate they wanted that day to be a wonderful goodbye where where everything's great and it all sounds and feels wonderful but but it wasn't like that and the people concerned didn't feel that way especially arsen but others like the like patrick vieira uh, robert pires they didn't feel that way so it was uncomfortable and i think it it's it remains uncomfortable mm. and that is just the nature of the situation that both arsenal and Ar- arsen got themselves into it's it's life isn't it things aren't always easy yeah i was there that day and i remember his speech i remember the reception he got from the crowd i remember the overwhelming sense of of gratitude uh, and people wanted for him to to get a good what, goodbye what, what you, yeah but what you won't have seen is the shots in the tunnel of yeah. him waiting for this yeah. and dreading it and and not wanting to be there mm. he says it's like it was like a funeral he's not going to come out on the pitch and say that but that is what that is the way he felt about it and that that in in terms of the documentary that is obviously something that we had to put across and we frame it at either end of the film and i think it's it, you know as a non arsenal supporter um as somebody who wants to make a film that's going to appeal not just to arsenal mm. fans but beyond that i think that's fascinating material because it it again it's it's life it's documentary it's the truth it's it's just yeah you know it's shakespearean in 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 the sense that he is a sort of king lear figure uh, without without trying to be too pretentious about it that, that who's who's has he lost touch with reality you know should should he have gone earlier it, it's it, it, it's just the way that life is and life repeats itself the mistakes repeat themselves and and that sometimes the greatest men the most intelligent men and women can't see beyond themselves yeah uh, that's that's the way it is yeah look it's it's easy sometimes to look back with hindsight and say i should have done this i should have done that he, he said i think there's a line in the film where he says one week you're facing a lot of criticism the next everybody wants to be nice to you and that i think even if he understood the reasons behind both the criticism and the desire to be nice, I guess it's a difficult thing to try and uh, contend with. Um, to try and as, balance as a person, in your life. Yeah, yeah. and, I, yeah, and I, I, you know, it, it was based around love. It was based around all the right motives. I believe that from Arsene. It was based around wanting to do the right thing. But of course, when does wanting to do the right thing then swing over into selfishness, into ego, mm. into pride into pride and it, and it, it's it's a fascinating element of his story and i think the way that he talks about it now with distance for the first time mm. front on to camera is um you know is one of the things that uh, i think everyone who loves who, who's aware of the arsen story and want and, and likes a good football story will want to see no i agree and there's some fascinating stuff behind the scenes not just you know on that but throughout his arsenal career and i think the the fact that maybe he has been confronted with a couple of things. With the book, for example, it felt like it could have used somebody to sort of steer him in the right direction in certain ways. And, you know, in the context of the film, that's something you guys have done fantastically well. So, look, thank you very much indeed uh, for making it. Thank you for your time and, and good luck with the film. We'll add all the links and trailers and all the information for people so they can find out where it's on and how they can get it. But Gabriel Clark, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much indeed to Gabriel Clark. The film is called Arsene Wenger Invincible. It is in cinemas from the 11th of November. It's out on Blu-ray, DVD and digital download from the 22nd of November. And if you haven't already seen the trailer, you will find a link to it in the show notes. So just click away there uh, on your favorite podcasting app. That will open up the trailer for you and you can have a look. I was lucky enough to see the film in advance of the interview. And I have to say, uh, I really, really enjoyed it. sweet at times it's fair to say but that's kind of how it was and how it ended up i'm sure that you guys will enjoy that when you do get a chance to see it thank you all for being such an important part of my life and hope to see you soon well done bye bye
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, before we crack on with the next part of the show, I just want to give you a heads up that our Splog has been nominated for Best Fan Media at the FSA Awards, the Football Supporters Association Awards. We are defending our title as Best Fan Media or Best Fran Merida, if you like. Uh, we're up against some very stiff and high-quality opposition, so if you could take the time to vote for us, we would really, 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 really appreciate it. You will find a link to the uh, voting form in the show notes right now, or you can find it uh, on rsblog.com on the post for this particular podcast episode. You'll find it there. Please give us your vote for Best Fan Media. It would be great to defend our title. Another trophy for Arsenal would be fantastic. There are also some Arsenal uh, options in there when it comes to Women's Player of the Year, including Kim Little and Vivian Miedema. Alex Scott is up for Pundit of the Year, and Susie Rack is also up for Writer of the Year. So if you want to keep it red and white, keep those votes coming. And we thank you very, very, very much in advance uh, for doing that. I think the votes are open for another couple of weeks, so we will give you some more periodic reminders on this in the days and weeks to come. Right, time to get on with the show, and joining me to talk Arsenal, to talk about bits and pieces that are on in the world of football, and to talk about the scouted football handbook it is phil costa hello hey andrew how's it going it's going okay um i want to start by asking you what you've made of goings on down the road i know this is an arsenal podcast but when stuff happens there we kind of have to kind of have to reference it pay attention a little bit uh we're in familiar territory where they're appointing a manager uh, that everybody thinks is going to be a, a huge success. And clearly, Antonio Conte is a, a very successful coach, a very good coach, uh, who may well do a, a good job there. But, you know, this is a club which announced their new Italian manager in Spanish. So there there are fundamental issues for him to deal with. Oh, man, that was <laughs> unbelievably cringy when I saw that. Imagine the sheer panic of the social media intern. <laughs> Like he must have turned white when they saw it. Like, oh my god, I'm done. I'm done already. <laughs> um, but you know, that's just them, isn't it? Nice and nice to know that it carries itself around the club and not just on the pitch. So, yeah, um, we like a bit of spursiness. And yeah, I mean, the thing that annoyed me about Conte was, you know, I know they tried for him in the summer, and obviously he said no because he just left Inter and won the Scudetto. Um, but it kind of feels like to me that they've stumbled upon this opportunity through their own incompetence. Mm. Um, because let's be honest, he shouldn't be anywhere near Tottenham, Antonio Conte. This is like one of the top five coaches in the world. And they've managed to snag him because the timing hasn't been right for anybody else. And they've just sacked their, what was it? 10th choice manager who was never going to work from the summer. So mm. it was just a bit like, as if they've managed to do one of their most, terribly thought out, you know, managerial appointments. Well, since I know when, since the last few years, um, and they've just managed to stumble across Antonio Conte. I'm, and I'm mm. sure it's from their, you know, the links with Fabio Paratici in, in, in their sort of director's box now, but yeah, you know, let's see. I mean, it's obviously you'd prefer him not to be there, but 
at the end of the day, it's the history of the Tottenham. So we have to see what happens and hopefully that continues. <laughs> For sure. I did like, I did like the, the reports that said Antonio Conte reveals that Daniel Levy's contagious enthusiasm and determination were key to him taking the role and not the 13 million pounds uh, a season that was on offer to him, you know, because like you say, he shouldn't be anywhere near a club like that. So look, no, not at all. We can only hope it goes the way that it always goes and always has gone and probably always will go. If there's consistent things in the world, the sun sets, the sun rises and Spurs will always find a way to be Spursy, you know? So let's keep fingers crossed. Amen. Amen. (laughs) A prayer to get this going. Right. I want to talk to you about a couple of Arsenal things. And there's been a lot of praise for... For for players in this recent run of form, Aaron Ramsdale, uh, look, we don't need to do that. It's been done to death already. Uh, the back four in particular, a lot of the new faces in that back four. Uh, but one in particular, Gabriel, has really stood out for me. Um, it's his second season, so he's not necessarily the new, new face, but he has in the, whatever it is, seven games that he's played, seven Premier League games that he's played, really, really come to the fore as a key part of what is a new defensive unit. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've always been kind of pro-Gabriel because what I saw in him, you know, even though he was young and, and, and still very raw, we could see that, you know, this was kind of the the mould of a potentially elite centre-back here, but especially in English football. Tall, strong, you know, he likes the contact. He likes to be in those battles. He's always ready to to put his his head and his body where it hurts. And I thought, okay, you know, we've got something here. Mm. Um, and he's obviously started off so well. And then for a variety of reasons, you know, with, with COVID and, and just the natural sort of dip in form as he acclimatised, you know, people forget that it's not just, you know, going to training every day and playing changed your life. You're changing your language, changing your you know, uh, you're everything, your routine. And, and I think that's very difficult for for young people. You know, we have to, we can't forget that these are very young people, you know, essentially moving their whole lives with a lot of pressure. Mm. And for me, it was that whole sort of stage where Pablo Marie was, was coming into the side and everyone was, you know, oh, maybe Pablo Marie's better than Gabriel. And I was just shaking my head like, this is absolute nonsense. I mean... <laughs> Look, he's been he's been fine, Pablo Marie, but I just I just saw. I'm not going to say it was the the general consensus, but it was definitely a noise um, for a long while, and I just wasn't having any of it because I think in the present, Gabriel looks a million times better. In the future, he's going to be a million times better, and I just think in terms of their suitability for English football, there was no competition really, and I just thought in the back of my head, give him some time. And he'll be there. And now I'm, I'm sort of bearing the fruits of my, of my labor, should we say. So very happy to, to be smug about that now. Sure. Why not? Why not? I mean, things in football, you can be right for as long as you're right until you're wrong. So you might as well make the most of it. Uh, well, we don't need to mention that part. So. <laughs> Listen, one of the things before you delve into him a little bit was <clears throat> David Luiz was often talked about as a, as a leader and, you know, a very senior figure and a popular figure, et cetera, et cetera. But I do wonder if you are a young Brazilian player, if it's difficult to sort of operate in his shadow in a way, if that in some ways has played a part in, in Gabriel maybe feeling a bit more confident about being that leader, being that 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 dominant personality in the back four, which you can't be if David Luiz is there. It's just not possible. He's just too big uh, a force of nature. I'm not saying it's always a good force of nature. Sometimes it's a lovely sunny day. Other times it's a hurricane which destroys everything in its path. But it's there, you know. Um, And Luiz is not there anymore. And I think that might be part of why we're seeing him take a little step forward in that regard. Yeah, potentially. I mean, it, it can also work both ways because I felt like in, if you needed someone to kind of hold his hand a bit, David Luiz was, was essentially the prime candidate, you know, experienced, um, obviously can speak the language, same same nation. Um, he could have been a really influential figure in, in his first kind of season there. So in, in that kind of sense, you know, I, I 
even though there are arguments to say that David Luiz could have been maybe a bit overbearing, I think in terms of him settling, that was a kind of nice thing to have. Mm. But in terms of his sort of sporting development at the club, I think we can see now that he's ready to take on that role of, you know, the, the rock at the back there, basically. You know, he's always ready to be... Um, commanding, you know, you can see him geeing up the guys, you know, get getting them up, getting the defensive lineup. He's always pointing and screaming now. And I think that it's been really nice to see that come out of him. And actually I saw um, the unclassic commentary today with Cedric. I don't know if you managed to I catch it. I had a chance to see it. Um, they did the, the game that we won against Spurs last season, the 2-1 at home. And... He's a big character. I mean, you can see him there with Cedric and he's laughing, joking and, you know, like the classic Brazilian commentators do when they just scream go <laughs> for about 50, 50 hours and, you know, having a good laugh there in Cedric and with his native language, you know, and I just think the language must have been a big, you know, Mikel Arteta's already mentioned it, Ramsdale mentioned it. And I think now that his English is slowly, we're seeing the best of Gabriel, not only sort of leadership sense as well. And I think that can only be a positive for the club. I was looking back at the profile you wrote of him um, when he signed last year. And um, one of the things that stood out for me, because um, you, you touch on the players when you do these things, you do like some strengths and some weaknesses. Uh, and one of the things that you said was that maybe because of the way that he plays, um, being very reliant on his stronger side, his left-hand side, is that he's often targeted or was targeted for a high press. And I think it's quite interesting, you know, two things. One, we haven't really seen that. We haven't seen mm -hmm. opposition press mm -hmm. him. And I think it's quite interesting because in the absence of Granit Xhaka, in many of the games, he is now the guy who has the most passes, the most touches, the most passes. He has become kind of like the fulcrum in that area of the pitch. And he does appear to be, well, not that he's press resistant. They're not doing it to him. So there must be like an awareness that, that this is a guy who can cope with that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I mean, he's, he's improved sort of, I, when I, when I used to watch him for the, for that profile piece, for example, you know, I, I didn't feel like he'd grown into his body completely, um, and which is perfectly normal for a, a 21, 22-year-old guy. You're still kind of at the latter stages there of your your growth. And I felt he just needed to put on a bit of a bit of size because he felt quite gangly to me. And, and that made him look quite clunky and clumsy on the ball. And I, and I think teams, especially in the Champions League, they noticed that and they kind of went for him. You know, I'm not saying he was bad with the ball or anything, but... Mm his defensive partner was Jose Font and he was kind of just like, get it, give it, don't want this ball anywhere near me. But Gabriel was quite keen to bring it out and and distribute. And I, and I think teams clocked onto that a bit. So, but completely, I think he's, his distribution has improved, his comfortability um, on the ball has improved. And I've really enjoyed him just fizzing passes through the lines this year. Um, I think we've missed, obviously, we kind of need Thomas Party for that. But on the left side in particular, um, that was kind of Granit Xhaka's thing, right? Mm. He's, he's the guy that's fizzing those passes in to Tierney or Emil Smith-Rowe when he's coming off the touchline. And there's been a few few times this season when I've looked at Gabriel and I was like, bloody hell, he's just pinged that like 40 yards on the ground. Um, straight into feet, you know, always at the right weight to give them a chance to control it, but also get there on time and... You know, I've just been really impressed, but I think it's been quite interesting because I found some some stats. Um, and during his final season at Lille, um, he used to attempt 14 high passes per game. Then in his first season with Arsenal, it dropped to nine. And then in his now in his second season, it's dropped to six. So you can see that it's basically, you know, more than halved um, the amount of high passes that he's going because at Lille they used to go long a lot to Victor Osimhen he used to run the channels um, and to their wide men who were kind of very quick and direct um, but I think now it's also in a slower team who maybe prefer the ball a bit um, but also I just I just think he's so much more comfortable and willing to to trust his technique and you can really see it when he strides out I don't really feel like he takes the easy option either um, you know, it's not just going left to Tierney every time. He's really fizzing them in. And I, I think it's been such a huge bonus and a, and a surprise, really, 
um, because I'm not sure many would have expected this, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think what I like as well about him is the the desire to to really become part of it, to become part of that mm-hmm. defensive unit, to be a, a, a dominant figure, an aggressive figure. We have been a team which has been a little bit easy to push around at times, and we have lacked some physical presence. And I think when you look at the partnership between himself and Ben White, everyone thinks like 50 million pounds, you're going to bring in a center half and this guy's going to be the boss, you know, and it's not the case with Ben White. He's got a different way of playing the game. He's a different kind of character. He seems, uh, you know, not, not like a shrinking violet or anything like that. Cause he left a couple on, on James Madison and one of which led mm-hmm. to the free kick, which Aaron Ramsdale <laughs> saved. Uh, so, you know, it's not that he's not physical, but he's not, he's never going to be that, that that kind of big dominant physical presence and i think the confidence that he's got now with his language having settled in and everything else um i just think he, this is a guy who really is ready to take a, a a big step forward yeah definitely i mean it's what you said about why you know there were maybe those preconceptions made that he was going to come in but he, he was never really like that even at leeds and at Brighton, he was kind of the guy who went about his business very quietly. I mean, mm. as you said, it didn't mean he was weak. It just meant that he he was kind of that guy who did his job and, and that's how he does it. But you really feel like Gabriel likes, you know, to to bang his chest when he makes a tackle and and, and relish that contact, that, that battle with the striker, you know. I mean, we've seen it with Harry Kane. How many times now has, has Kane got nothing from Gabriel? Mm. You know? He's always climbing on top of him and... And, you know, I just love that that kind of spirit in a defender. And I think, you know, the best thing about this is um, we can just say that he was, you know, um, 50 million and that Pepe was uh, a bit less. So in, we can kind of justify <laughs> it in our heads like that. So, you know, forget the, forget the 72 million we paid for Pepe. You know, we've only paid 22 and we've paid 50 for Gabrielle. So thanks very much, Lille. That's a, a lovely bit of business we've yeah. done there. So Put the two of them together and just split the difference and make both deals look yeah, who really needs, good. You know, who needs record signings? Yeah, no, sure. no worries. I want to ask um, you about... Yeah, really, <laughs> Go on. Yeah, yeah. Just sorry. Just, yeah, super happy with him. And I think we've... We found the gem. We found the gem, and I'm I'm hoping it continues. Right. I want to ask you about the system and the formation that we've been playing in the last little while. And again, people might say it's a manager stumbling onto something. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that's quite fair, but it is a little bit different. Um, Alexandra Lacazette came into the team and uh, is performing quite a specific role. Uh, connection with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, if it's a 4 4 2 4 one, one, uh, whatever it might be. I'm just curious as to your thoughts on the, the sort of Lacazette inclusion of late. Do you think that's a reward for the way that he just played against Villa? Do you think it's about getting another goal scorer on the pitch? Is it um, a way of of maybe demonstrating to people that even though they haven't got much time left on their contract, you know, they they can still be used, um, that there's a sort of egalitarianism to the squad or, or whatever it might be? Because Lacazette's inclusion is coming at the exclusion of, of Martin Odegaard, who hasn't played well in the last few games, but is a big signing and, and one for the future. So um, how do you see the way Arteta is using Lacazette in these uh, last few games? I think it's definitely interesting. Um, but in, in my kind of head, it can be boiled down to something very simple. And that's, as you mentioned, Odegaard wasn't playing well. Um, Lacazette came in and, and did play well. And, and that's it. Um, mm. You know, he's kept his place in the team. Odegaard had a, a bit of a knock and, and now it's up to him to to get back into the team, basically. So, and I think, look, although we've spent a lot of money on Martin Odegaard and we've all got very high hopes for him, you know, there's nothing wrong with changing your system or your tactics throughout the season, On you know, if it's working, you know, and I think we found a nice sweet spot here with Lacazette, maybe with a point to prove and we know he likes to work hard and, um, and kind of be a bit of a focal point. And, and that's always been a nice balance with the Bayern I mean, we've seen that with Emery. Um, you know, they basically carried us to the Europa League final when they were in that kind of partnership up front. So, you know, I don't really have any issues with Martin Odegaard being pulled out of the side. I think, um, as you said, maybe it's just a, an example that if, you, if you're if you playing well and you're working hard, you can be in the team. Um, 
but I think we've kind of struck a nice balance in that Lacazette can play maybe 55, 60 minutes at full throttle and then he's done. Mm. Um, and maybe Arteta's just saying to him, look, go and be a bit secure for us in that centre. Go and put yourself about, go and hit a few defenders, take a few hits. Um, because at the moment it's working, he's playing well. Obviously he adds another goal threat. And and then if we need Odegaard to come on and replace him and we need a bit of bit more finesse, bit more uh, composure on the ball, then we can do it. You know, I, I don't feel there's a huge issue. I think people have been complaining about Erdegaard already. And it's just like, we have a squad for this reason, you know? And people complained last year that we that we didn't really try to vary things up a bit. And now we are, and they're still complaining. So it's just a bit like, well, you know, it's the same with Tavares now. And everyone's like, well, is Tierney going <laughs> to lose his place? And it's like, well, Tavares is playing well. Who cares? You know, Tierney gets a rest. Tavares is playing. That's what we bought him for, you know? And it's just, I don't know. I like it. It's good. It's been a long time since we, we had this kind of option at Arsenal. So I'm completely happy with it. Really happy. How do I mean, do you see there being a fundamental change to the system if, for example, Odegaard starts ahead of Lacazette? Because Lacazette's a striker who's going to drop off a bit, be a bit more physically robust, stick his backside into people, uh, maybe create or or have a bit more threat around the penalty area than Odegaard would, who would sit deep and maybe look to create from deep. So are there potential knock-on effects for Smith-Rowe or Saka, either side of him, um, if he plays rather than, than Lacazette in this particular system? Because we haven't necessarily seen this a huge amount um, with Martin Odegaard. I mean... <sighs> Potentially, I mean, they're, they're two different players, so there will naturally be a few stylistic differences when either one plays. But I think last season we saw perfectly fine that Smith Rowe can, can play on the left and, and with Martin Odegaard, um, you know, and the same for whoever's on the right, whether it's Bukayo Saka or Nicola Pepe. I think Odegaard has a nice tendency to drift over to that right side. So, you know, I think at the moment Lacazette's in the team performing a very specific role, as you said. Um, kind of physical, taking some of the heat away from Aubameyang, which has also seen him, you know, put in some hard yards as well. And he's been pressing and he's been battling as well. So it's been really good. I mean, sometimes you need someone to fall out of the side to to give you something else. And, and that's what what's happened. You know, I think Sambi coming closer to party has also made a big difference, I will say, because... I could understand why in the first couple of games Arteta tried to do that whole Xhaka thing where he fills into the left-back position. But I just think now we have such a stronger presence in the middle um, with Lacazette, Partey, Sambi there. They're all, you know, they can all get mm. stuck in. They can all hold the ball. And I think if Martin Odegaard were to come back in, for example, the role would be slightly different. But I just think we're better placed for him to thrive. And obviously... That needs to be down to him as well. Um, and I'm sure he knows that and Arteta knows that. But, you know, as long as Lacazette's playing well, I've got absolutely no issue with, with Odegaard sitting it out for now. Healthy competition. I think that's what we're looking absolutely. for, isn't it? Yeah. Um, absolutely. If Arsenal were to beat Watford on Sunday, and I'm taking nothing for granted, I've been pleased and encouraged by our recent form, and I think everybody has been, but, you know, this is not our first rodeo when it comes to Arsenal. So, you know, we we, we take everything, um, not with a pinch of salt, but we're realistic to know that, that you know, there are still going to be some inconsistencies. However, home game, going into an interlull, you're targeting three points. If we were to get them, it would make it 20 points from the last 24. I think it would leave us in a fairly healthy position uh, in the table going into the interlull, depending on other results. But we'd be there or thereabouts in terms of the, the top six and certainly within distance of of the top four. So given that that's where we are now, is is it realistic to expect this Arsenal team to maintain that kind of pace or to 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 at least hang on in that area of the table between now and the end of the season? Because surely that's what the standards should be. That's what we're expecting. That's what Mikel Arteta has said about where this club needs to be, where it needs to go, etc., etc. They've 
dragged themselves up from that dreadful start to the season and got themselves into a really, really healthy position. Um, and I think deserve great credit for that. But it's then about making sure you, you do it on a consistent basis. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think we spoke in one of the uh, transfer podcasts at the start of the season and or was it the preview with, with Andrew Allen maybe mm. that we said top six is, is realistically where we need to be this year. Um, anything less would have been a, a, a really bad underperformance again. Um, and after the, the poor start we had, I know it was some difficult games. We had players out with COVID. Um, you know, it was just kind of a perfect storm really. And But we needed this this run you know, even if they're not all wins to stay unbeaten. I mean, I know there were a couple of issues in the Brighton game and the Palace game, but we needed to kind of put a run on eventually, you know, and and, and we're doing that. And for me, the big issue was the performances. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes you can play well and lose. Sometimes you can play badly and, and win. Um, but for me, the biggest issue has been our performances under Mikel Arteta. I've just found them a little bit too rigid, too structured, um, you know, not making a lot of chances. So we, when, you know, we're on Twitter the next day posting screenshots of Emil Smith-Rowe running through and why is he not passing to Pepe? You know, because we're making like two chances a game. So they really mean a lot. And I, mm. I've just found us to be a bit more balanced and, you know, a bit more adventurous going forward. I don't think we're we're so reliant on those one or two chances anymore. I mean, we still play in bursts. And I think there is an issue there with, with maybe our conditioning or our ability to manage games. I'm not sure. I'm sure they're looking at it, you know, behind the scenes, but I've just found us to be a much more enjoyable watch. Um, and it feels like the team are finally onto something, you know, whether mm. Arteta's changed something behind the scenes, I'm not sure. Um, but I just feel like this group now, they kind of know their roles. We've got a much more committed physical back five, um, obviously with Ramsdale coming in as well, I think they've made a big difference. Um, and I've just, I, I've seen improvement, you know, and that's that's all I wanted, really. And hopefully now we can translate that performance, you know, the improvement of performance into points. And I think we can do it, mm. you know. I think if you look across the squad, you see that first eleven. And you feel confident in what you're seeing because this is a good team. And it's, you know, hasn't always been the case. Um, but you look, you know, you look at Thomas Party now, you look at Emil Smith-Rowe and Saka coming into their own. We've got a really good defence. I don't know. I just feel like we've we've turned the corner. And for me, it was a big worry. Um, and they're, you know, they're fading quite quickly now because I think something's clicked. I'm not sure what it is, mm. when it happened. Maybe that Spurs game. Um, but I'm just, you know feeling good so hopefully we can play Watford on on the week on Sunday I think it is and yeah. in front of a nice nice crowd at the Emirates and really try and finish before the inter inter low on a, on a good note because yeah. it would just be a, a really nice thing for everybody yeah it's it's sort of like um filling up your belief ometer you know as as we do yeah, week slowly, after week slowly. just slowly 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 you can start to yeah to feel a bit more confident and hopefully that will happen on on Sunday against Watford. Right. Before we go, just one of the projects that you're involved in uh, is called Scouted Football. So mm -hmm. um, just tell us a little bit about what that is and, and what you do there. Well, I mean, we're, we're a, a website that was primarily created to focus on, on players who are young and up and coming, you know, primarily under the age of 23. So we'd you know, we do little scouting reports and profiles on them. And, you know, it, it started as a, as a website and now we've slowly branched out into, into magazines and handbooks. Mm. And now we create four editions every year. So it's every quarter, basically, um, filled with uh, profiles on 25 young talents across world football. Um, and that's, you know, from... Argentina to Zimbabwe, you know, and everybody in between. So we have a really, you know, great team of writers who who watch these guys, and I mean watch them. Like there's hours of footage being put into these pieces and their profiles, and you know, we've also put features inside now, and I think it's just, you know, crazy considering it's a team of five, really. And we've, you know, with full-time jobs and no experience, we've managed to create something really cool and impressive. So um, I'm really proud of what we do. And 
and and yeah, I try and slip as much Arsenal bias as I can into them as possible. So speaking of which, which, which hopefully brings us yes, yeah, you know, segue nudge nudge. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, the the latest issue is very very Arsenal centric. So tell us what's in there uh, that will be of interest to uh, to Arsenal fans. Absolutely. I mean, well, well, the cover jumps out. It's a it's an amazing piece of work. Um, by an artist called Kevin McGiven, and he's he's done all of our covers this year, and they've all been sensational. But this one of Smith Rose, you know, they look like photos. Really, the mm. amount of detail he puts into these things are in- incredible. So, it's got a really nice cover of Emil Smith Rowe, and then I've written the profile, the corresponding profile inside uh, of the magazine. And there's also a big feature on Hale End, um, written by Lewis Ambrose, who obviously many will know from the preview pods and and some other casts. And, you know, it's just a really cool piece of work with nice artwork and, you know, it's really well put together. And, you know, there's also other bits about how Barcelona can rejuvenate through their academy. And we we touched on the Chelsea Academy exodus. And, and there's also an interview from me um, for from Victor Orta, the director of football at Leeds. And there's some really interesting stuff about recruitment and data analytics in there. And I think it's just, you know, a really cool thing to be involved in. And I think a lot of football fans, you know, even if you're not so interested on, on the youth angle, you can find, you know, um, sort of joy in those features. And, sure. and yeah, with the, with the Arsenal angle, we're happy to, to get it onto the pod. All right. Well, look, we've, we've got a couple of copies uh, to give away to people of the handbook to give away, which we will do uh, after this conversation. And we will put all the uh, respective links uh, in the show notes as well so people can find it, follow the Twitter account and have a look at the website. Uh, best of luck with it, Phil. And as always, thanks a million for your time. Perfect. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, let's get a nice three points this weekend. Let's do it. Thank you very much indeed to Phil. You can find him on Twitter. He is at underscore Phil Costa, at underscore Phil Costa. And the website, Scouted Football, is scoutedftbl.com. That's scoutedftbl.com. You'll find a link in the show notes. As I said, if you would like to win one of the magazines, we've got three to give away. It's got Emile Smith-Rowe on the cover. In order to do that, here's what you do. Send an email to competition at arsblog.com. That is competition at arsblog.com. Tell me what is the text in white on red on the Scouted Football website. When you visit scoutedftbl.com, what are the two words in white in a red box at the very top of the website? Simple as that. Competition at arsblog.com. Competition at arsblog.com. And we will announce the winners on next week's show. And with that, we will call time on this week's Arsecast. Thank you, as always, for being here. For more on the Watford game on Sunday, join myself and Lewis Ambrose for a preview podcast exclusively on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Arseblog. Mikel Arteta is meeting the press on Friday morning, so we'll get team news updates and all the bits and pieces. So we will have plenty to discuss ahead of that game at the Emirates on Sunday. Some decisions to be made regarding fitness over certain players etc etc you'll also find on patreon a brand new edition of the poorly drawn month in which myself and uh poorly drawn arsenal whose work i'm sure you know on twitter and instagram i do the words he does the artwork we do a recap of the month the latest one which is on october is out now featuring some fantastic artwork that is available for you as well right over there patreon.com forward slash arsblog okay james and i will be here on monday as always with a brand new Arscast Extra for you. For now, though, thank you for listening, for downloading, for subscribing, for sharing, for twirling. Nobody ever thinks to thank the people who twirl. Not me. Thank you, twirlers. We will catch you on the next one. Until then, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye.
So, Antonio, welcome to your first interview with Spurs TV. Or should I say, Bienvenido? Sorry, correction, uh, Bienvenido is actually Spanish. Oh, silly me, of course, Antonio. Willkommen. No, that's German. Antonio, bienvenue to Spurs. That's French. Oh, so sorry, Antonio Conte. Cade me la fortune to Spurs. That's Irish. How the fuck do you know Irish? Mr. Conte, saluto to Tottenham. Latin. Look, this is getting embarrassing. Just try something else. It's me, Mario. Mamma mia. Okie dokie. Here we go. Wow. Let's go. Ah, spaghetti. Game over. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 